on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. The story that I tell is that I remember watching the old Batman, Burt Ward, and Adam West show. And it was a Frank Gorshin Riddler episode. He's trying to, I think, steal money from a movie studio. But there's a whole Charlie Chaplin gig that he does. And he's doing the funny, you know, tramp walk. And I thought that was so hysterical. And I had family over, like the cousins and uncles and aunts. And I did the funny Charlie Chaplin walk for them, like to get attention. And they all laughed. And I've been chasing that laugh ever since. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 102 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get going for this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode of the show, John Shaw, Vegas magician, illusionist, and sideshow performer. John was kind enough to share his story with me, including his crazy road to Vegas and what motivates him to freak people out by eating light bulbs, swallowing swords, and dangling paint cans from hooks stuck through his eyelids. If you haven't had a chance to listen as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 101, my special guest, John Shaw, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. My guest this time around has been a part of the Vegas performance scene for close to 20 years. Enoch Augustus Scott got his start with the classic show Tony and Tina's Wedding and currently stars as Xenoch, the host and MC of Zombie Burlesque at the V Theater in the Miracle Mile Shops at Planet Hollywood. Enoch and I discussed what initially got him interested in entertaining, some of his early Vegas gigs, his pandemic project, The Tiger Thing, and he shared what might possibly be the most only-in-Vegas story ever. Please enjoy my conversation with Enoch Augustus Scott. I've been in Vegas for almost 20 years. I moved here in 2002. But I grew up in North Carolina. Uh, I spent um, from like the age of two and a half to 21 in North Carolina. I was grew up in Charlotte. Uh, and then I went to school at Duke University, which is in Durham, um, just up the road from Charlotte. And then as soon as I graduated from college, I moved out to the West Coast. And I lived in Seattle for a couple years. I lived in LA for like five years. And then... Living in LA, I um, did Tony and Tina's wedding. They did a revival uh, on Hollywood Boulevard with um, the original uh, producer, uh, original director rather, and the original Tina, and uh, 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 producing and directing the whole thing. And so I became friends with the Nancy Cassaro, who was the original Tina in Tony and Tina's wedding. And then they needed some help in Vegas for a couple weeks, and I came out to help. And a couple weeks turned into two years, which turned into 20 years. It's weird how that happens. That seems to be a common thread with a lot of Vegas entertainers that I talk to is they they seem to, as as you say, they come out for 
you know, one little project that they think is maybe going to last a little bit. And then, yeah, the next thing you know, 20 years later, you're still in the city. Yeah, it's a great town to be a middle-class artist. It's a, it's a working town. Um, you know, when it's pumping, it's pumping. When it's, you know, when things like the economic collapse or the pandemic hit, you know, it hits us super hard. But when this town is pumping, it's pumping and there's work for people. You can have a house that isn't the size of a closet. Uh, you can have a pool, you can, you know, have a car and you can have a family and that kind of thing. So I think, especially for people who have done the New York or LA thing and maybe not found uh, it to work for them, um, they get to Vegas and, you know, they can find some work and they can make some money. And then all of a sudden, um, all that struggling artist stuff isn't so prevalent in one's mind, if that makes sense. <laughs> when did the entertainment bug first kind of bite you? When did you, you first realize, you know what, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, my mother, Miss Betty Ann Kathy had always wanted, um, a creative child. Like she had tried to put all of her kids in violin classes and piano classes and stuff like that. And I was the kid it just really took with, um, like she put me in puppet classes and stuff. But my, the story that I tell is that I remember watching the old Batman, Burt Ward and Adam West show, um, which I loved. It was so, I love that version of Batman. It's so colorful. And the, you know, the characters were so fantastic and all the actors that they had to come in to play the villains were so incredible. Um, and it was a Frank Gorshin Riddler episode. And I think it's the, I, I think it's the first episode that the Riddler appears in, but He's trying to, I think, steal money from a movie studio. So he, but there's a whole Charlie Chaplin gig that he does um, in it. And so Frank Gorshin, as the Riddler, is doing Charlie Chaplin, and he's doing the funny, you know, tramp walk. And I thought that was so hysterical. And I had family over. They were all in the front room. There's green shack carpeting and sheetrock because it was the '70s. Um, and the family was over, like the cousins and uncles and aunts, and I like did the funny Charlie Chaplin walk for them, like to get attention. And they all laughed. And it was like at that, and I've been chasing that laugh ever since. So I, I'm assuming then that entertainment was kind of, that was, that was always what you wanted to do or was there something else on the back burner just as a, as a just in case? Uh, nope. It's all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I know how to do. Um, the only other thing I would ever, I ever remotely considered was being a, cytologist a marine biologist who studied whales and dolphins and porpoises um but yeah i went to duke to study theater when i went there um there was a small period at duke where the um drama department was almost like conservatory like so the idea was that you get a great liberal arts education obviously and then also get some really intense um drama training theater training and acting training um so I, the class that I went to Duke with was people who were really, or my drama class was, you know, very focused on being performers and being in the theater industry and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I went to Duke to uh, learn how to act and direct. And then I um, didn't get into grad school. So I headed to the West coast and really fumbled around for a long time, trying to figure out how to make a, a theater and women's studies degree work in the real world. Uh, but I was a personal assistant in LA and worked for this woman who had a lot of connections in Hollywood and, you know, learned a lot about sort of that industry from that perspective. And, uh, and then finally ended up in Vegas doing what I love, which is being on a stage in front of people. Like I love live performing. I, there's just nothing like it. Um, so I'm so fortunate and grateful that my destiny sort of ended up here in Las Vegas. You mentioned that, um, that first gig, Tony and Tina's wedding, which is such a fun show. And, uh, one of those shows that still is performed 
all over the place to this day. Um, did you have any other sort of bizarre first gigs in Vegas? I, I know in other entertainers that I've talked to, they mention about being, um, singing waiters or singing bartenders or dancing card dealers or, or anything like that. So after Tony and Tina's wedding, um, I, I did that for like two years and then I started gigging. So I was doing slot, I would host slot tournaments. I would, uh, just work corporate events. The worst, I, I had to be a, uh, one of those living statues once. That's a, I only did that once. That was <laughs> awful. Um, but I've done everything. I, you know, I helped out uh, Nathan Burton backstage. I helped out. I would stand on Flamingo Boulevard handing out two for one Nathan Burton like buffet coupons um, for him. I drove his um, driving billboard, <laughs> uh, and then I, you know. And then I, you know, started auditioning for shows. I got back into shows and stuff. But every show I would get would run for like two months. I did like uh, Cannibal the Musical down at the Plaza. I did this uh, Las Vegas vaudeville show um, that we started out of Bonnie Springs. And it was so great. And then we brought it to the Strip and nobody gave an F. Um, and that ran for like two months. I did uh, Awesome 80s Prom, which is another environmental improv kind of show i did that you know that was another one that ran for two months and then closed i was like the king of shows that would run for two months and close and then zombie hit um and then that sort of changed my whole uh career yeah let's talk about zombie burlesque this um this seems like such a fun show uh runs at the v theater inside the miracle mile shops at planet hollywood um tell me a little bit about the show the premise the plot what's what's the show all about uh, the premise is that um, there's has been a zombie human war, but they've come to a truce. And the truce is that if humans uh, give zombies prisoners to eat, then zombies won't eat the innocent humans anymore. So now humans and zombies can hang out. So this is the first night where humans have come to the zombie burlesque club. And so we're just doing our normal show, but slowly things start to go wrong and, uh, humans may or may not almost get eaten and then we say goodbye and the curtain closes tell some dick jokes and some titty jokes and <laughs> escape dick and titty jokes very important in any vegas show in my opinion yeah my job is mostly to change costume and tell dick jokes <laughs> nice uh, tell me a little bit about the character that you play in the show you are um the host of the show Xenoc is the, you know, it sounds like it. And everyone's always like, oh, it's just like you heightened. And he's obviously when you're an actor and you create a part, it's a part of you, but he's such a specific part of me. I've always loved old vaudeville humor. I've loved um, like the Catskill comedians, um, old like Jewish New York, the, the roots of like American stand-up comedy uh, have just always fascinated me. And I've always been a fan of that era. And so to me, he's, he's that he's, He's the worst stand-up comedian you'll ever see, but he's so um, lovable and charming, and he really honestly wants everyone to have fun and have a good time, and he loves tits, and he loves dick, and loves ass, and loves people, and... Um, but so that's him, and he's just the owner of the club, and, you know, that he's sort of the Lord Zombie, I like to think of him. They're all his minions, and... But he's also Kermit the Frog. He's, like, trying to put on this show... And everything keeps they, you know, the wacky shenanigans keep on happening behind him. And he's trying to make sure the audience doesn't see it, but they keep, you know, like, so it's that kind of character. And so how did you get connected with this show initially? Tell me a little bit about the, um, 
uh, the audition process? I, there used to be a thing called VegasAuditions.com, and everybody in town had it, and everybody in town went on it, and that's where the auditions were listed. And because I'm an actor in a town that has absolutely no need for actors, um, I, I had to go to any and every audition that was even remotely right for me. Um, you know, so I just, I got, and I learned how to really look at auditioning as just a thing you did. Don't take it personal. Like every audition is a chance to make you better. Maybe you don't get the gig, but maybe you meet somebody while you're waiting who, you know, and, or maybe that person remembers you the next time the director or the producer, the next time you go into audition for them, like I really learned you just like 90% of the game is showing up. You just have to show up because so many people don't. So many people are conquered by their fears and insecurities and doubts and don't show up mm-hmm. and all you have to do is get in your car and drive to the audition if you suck you suck but who cares what, are, are, they're not going to cut off your feet and hands mm-hmm. and send you into the street you know because you had a bad audition right you had a bad audition go and eat some ice cream and get over it um <laughs> but so uh i would go to every audition and um like that's how i ended up in you know all these shows that wouldn't run uh, but then the audition for Zombie Burlesque came up, and I was like, "This is my show. This is the like a burlesque show." I'd always been sort of tangentially involved in sort of the burlesque world and the, some of the neo burlesque world, and I was like, "This is my show. I have to get this show. This is meant for me." Um, but I was doing a gig at the Bourbon Room at the Venetian, which was like an '80s bar that was at- attached to Rock of Ages. Ah, yes, very, very familiar with the former Bourbon Room. Used to spend a lot of time there. Yeah, I would work there twice a month as the marvelous Mark. I would fill in for him, the host, and dress in a you know '80s rocker clothes. And be, but I would be there till like four in the morning or so. Like the gig was late, and then so I didn't make the. It was two auditions, Friday and Monday for a Zombie. I didn't make the Friday, so I was going to go Monday. But I was like, I was wrecked. I didn't like from the night before, I didn't really have a song to sing. I was just such, but, and I called up my best friend, Katie Kenner, now Katie DeGraff. And I was like, Katie, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I'm not prepared. And she was like, just go, just go. And so I just went and, um, I talked a lot of shit. Like, I was like, listen, nobody in this town can host the show, but me just, you got to cast. I'm just, nobody else can do it and then I go and sit down they're like David's not here just go and wait for David Sachs the producer so I go and sit down this other boy sings and you know gets up to audition and he this kid sings Maria from West Side Story like an angel like I'd never heard a human being sing before and I was like if that is what they're going for I'm fucked <laughs> so I was like what can I do 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 and I was like okay you've got to do something so I googled the Vincent Price monologue to Thriller on my phone. And then when David or Tyre, whoever got there, got there, I went up and like did the monologue from thriller in the Vincent price boys. And then said, thank you very much. Goodbye. And then didn't hear for a couple, a little bit, but then finally heard. And, uh, and, uh, David called me up and he was like, Hey, do you want to do the gig? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you don't even know the money yet. And I was like, I don't care. I just, I want the gig. And then before the show had opened, he'd give me like two raises and stuff. Um, they weren't really, as it turns out from that audition, they weren't really aware of what I was capable of doing. <laughs> so it took them a moment to realize that I had skill sets other than Vincent Price impersonations. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I started working with Zombie. And then eight years later. And being that you are a, a original cast member and that you were there right from the beginning, I'm assuming you've had um, some input into the development of the show and the development of your your character. 
Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Well, I, they were really gave me a lot of creative freedom. So a lot of the, a lot of his jokes and stuff, and the monologues are are were crafted by me with direction from them and stuff. So yeah, I had a lot of him. It was a really incredible experience. The building of Zombie was an incredible creative experience. It was just you know, and they they trusted me so much and gave me so much room to play and figure it out and figure myself out, and it, it was great. It's all, it's still been great. I mean, when we came back from pandemic, rebuilding it again was fantastic and so cool in a different way, just chill. And, um, but you know, Vegas is a town with some of the, the best live performers, like in the country, like you're working with some of the best. Um, so it's just, it's always nice to be able to have that creative time before it becomes, you know, the daily grind. Coming up, Enoch talks about the pandemic-inspired project he's been working on and shares the most Vegasy Vegas show story ever. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. I'm assuming that there's still a little bit of that development of the show and of the character going on and that it's a live show and it's that kind of live show where you are interacting to a certain degree with, with the audience. And that's going to vary from show to show and audience to audience, right? It's like 98% like shit I've done before. And there's 2% magic that happens every night, but it looks like 50, 50 because that's my job is to make things look like they're just happening that night for the first time. But you know, after doing it for so long, I generally speaking have a response to anything because I've encountered so many things. Um, so there's always like something in here. I think Bianca Del Rio, like it's her Rolodex of hate, she would call it. But like when you're a stand-up comedian or comedian or, or MC or whatever, you have these in your toolkit, you have all these things you say or quips or whatever for almost any situation. But for sure, there is a degree of like, but that's, again, that's where the magic happens is that like right around the edges where it's only that night that you're going to see that thing happen or the audience is such an important part of the show. It really is a mix between the two of us. So like every night seems different and unique for sure. I had to kick a hooker out a week and a half ago. <laughs> I saw that on your Twitter. Now, this is probably the most um, Vegas entertainer story that I've ever heard in my life. So... I'm going to need you to share it because it would the tweet just absolutely slayed me. It's like in the front row, even up against the wall in our theater strain, there's only one aisle. And so there's only one way to get out. So if you're up against the wall, you have to cross over everyone and get out. Um, so come in late, this guy and this chick who was very, very pretty and, you know, very, very um, Vegasly dressed. And this guy who looked like just, he, she was completely out of his league. It just, anyway, looked like, it looked like an arrangement to me. So it was cool for a while. And then she just starts getting louder and louder. And just like, they're those people who want to like, who want to just heckling you and just like not stopping and like interrupting scenes. And she's just getting progressively louder. And finally I had to turn to her and be like, Hey, it's too much now. Please stop. Like in front of the audience and stuff, I'm doing this. Like, you know, please, you know, it's too much. You have to stop. Um, turn to the guy and I'm like, Hey, you have to take care of this. You have to handle her. And she's like, no, I want you to handle me. It's like, what I wanted to say is like, I didn't dial like nine, seven, six girls direct to you today. So please, I'm not handling you. I didn't, that's not my job. Um, and so I was like, listen, if you can be cool, listen, I'm literally saying this in front of the audience. I was like, if you can be cool, you can stay. But if you say one more thing, you've got to go. 
And I was like, audience, is it cool if she stays? And they're like, okay. So then like, there's an adage, there's the two quiet moments. I'm off stage. I come back and like, she yells out something again and you could hear the audience just go like, <gasps> and then I was like, and then I come back out and I, I'm trying to do this tender speech where I go like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're white, bled, you know, white, black, red, yellow, blue, or, and I'm about to say green, but of course people also do that phrase and say purple. So every now and then people like to scream out purple. So she of course screams out purple. And I was like, okay, I just can't anymore, honey. You got to go. And she's like, what? No, I'm your best friend. I was like, no, you have to go now. Um, and so then I, my stagehands, like the ushers aren't there. So I have to call my stagehands. One is Dan. He's a little fit guy, but the other is Silver. And we call him Silverback. He's like six foot three and like this big guy. And so I was like, Dan, Silverback. And you can hear the audience be like, Silverback, um, would you please come escort this young lady out of the theater? And so she gets up and is walking out and just talking shit. They're like, I can't believe it. I'm such an awful person. I can't believe it. Just all the way. And then he is sitting there. And I was like, no, bro, you got to go too. You got to return this hooker to her pimp. Because you got a defective hooker, honey. You got a hooker that don't know how to act at a show. Like, you want to bring a hooker to a show, great. But, you know, she has to know how to act, honey. Like, I've... So, yeah. So, I... The guy out too. The guy, I couldn't believe the guy was just sitting there. I was like, no, baby, you need to take her back to where you found her. <laughs> I, I do love the fact that the dude was just kind of like, oh, I'm not with her. I don't know who she is or what. Man alive, honey. Man alive, honey. Take her back to Tropicana. Um, <laughs> and then the thing is, like, the night before, there was this 11 year old kid who read as trans to me. I thought it was a boy, but then there were nails and stuff. So to me, it looked like a trans kid. And, uh, but 11 years old, and I couldn't believe it. So I always have a bit with it, if there's kids in the audience. I'm like, you know, rah, rah, rah. Um, and, uh, but I'm doing that final speech. This night's before the hooker gets kicked out. You know, a completely different night. I'm doing that final tender speech. And the kid goes like, uh, she's like, honestly, just says and during a break, which is the nice way to heckle or not heckle, but just talk back. She's like, honestly, I can't wait to meet you. And my heart was broken. I couldn't like finish my monologue. So and we don't do meet and greet anymore because of COVID. But I went back after the show. I just snuck out and like met the kid. It turns out like the kid had wanted to, they wanted to come there for their birthday. Their mom tells me to zombie burlesque in Vegas to see my stupid show for their birthday. And then it's like a mom and the kid and a grandma. And like, there's a service dog too that I didn't even notice until that moment. I was like, that service dog sat through my whole show. And it's loud and crazy. It was fine and polite, but like a hooker can't sit through. <laughs> so, and then, and then a few, like a week later, just recently, like this, the, we do a couples game where we bring a couples up, put the boy in the isolation booth. And the only couple there that was newlyweds was a guy with a service dog. So it was this huge, like great Dane, like Marmaduke of a service dog. We brought him up on stage and it sat outside the isolation booth and was chill. Um, my, I guess ultimately my point is I have encountered a lot of <laughs> of um, variables during my course of time at Zombie Burlesque, and it's uh, equipped me with a lot of uh, tools in my kit to handle those sort of random wacky things. So my nemesis are 50-year-old, you know, middle-aged white women who who get drunk and want to come to Las Vegas and be super loud. My other nemesis is the two guys who have read Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and want to recreate it. 
and think that their job is to come to Vegas and do a lot of blow and hookers and scream things at shows. Like it's so we had two of those recently, just literally screaming out. Like I was like, so what's everybody been doing? He's like, hookers and blow. <laughs> like ha, 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 funny for a second. And then I'm having to handle them. And then eventually I called up the ushers and I said, listen, I can't, it's, I can't, it can't be my job to kick these people out. So someone else has to come and talk to these gentlemen and tell them that perhaps this is not the best venue for their, I love it. It makes you a dragon though. That's my thing about Vegas. I always say like, um, it, there's an old, you'll pardon me, but I'm a Buddhist and it like really does frame my entire life. And there's an old Buddhist Chinese myth about there's a pond of koi fish and there's a waterfall and if the koi fish can make it up the waterfall. They become a dragon. And Obviously, the, the the allegory is that it isn't the destination that makes you a dragon. It's getting up the waterfall that makes you a dragon. And so, um, to me, Las Vegas is that waterfall. Like, if you can make it up this waterfall, you you become an incredible creature with incredible talent and skill sets and and all that kind of stuff. And the ability to come back on guys that yell out hookers and blow. <laughs> Pick up. Sad hookers, but also be really chill about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the pandemic a little bit and COVID-19 shutting down Vegas and shutting down all the shows and everything that kind of went along um, with that. Something that I admired a lot about so many Vegas performers was you guys didn't sit still when, when things kind of went sideways, you found other ways to, um, fill your time and other things to do so many performers that I've talked to post pandemic had said they appreciated kind of having the time to be able to work on other projects. And you did that as well in capitalizing on what might've been possibly the, um, the biggest trend of the beginning of the pandemic with tiger King, you put together a project called tiger thing. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, well, um, yeah, I only know how to do three things. Smoke pot, buy action figures, and create um, art on stage um, and tell stories. That's all I know how to do. Um, so, and I'm very good at all three of those. Um, but, <laughs> so when the pandemic happened and the Netflix show happened, when I saw it, you know, like we all did, I was just like, I understood that guy. I mean, like, we're not that far apart in age, frankly, as much as I might hate to admit it. Um, and while you know, I've not had as toxic a masculine situation as he had, but I understand like a guy from the South, not being comfortable with his sexuality and acting out. And, you know, I, I just got him and, you know, he's an entertainer. It's he, you know, we all have that drive to want to be star. I mean, I get where he comes from. Um, and I, and I have seen drugs destroy people. I have seen uh, people really become creatures that they are not because of hard drugs. So I was fascinated by him and I thought there has to be, you know, again, gotta be a way to capitalize on this and turn this something like this is some, a character I can do. And I've never been an impressionist or anything like that. I've always been, been an actor, but like I could, you know, I can play this character. So I, with my writing partner, cause we'd written another show called baritones of love that we were trying to get out there, like had it ready to go on boats. And then the pandemic happened and, um, so I was like, let's write some songs. And it was never, it was really just meant to be like a concept album, which is what it was really the tiger cycle, uh, thing. And that's how it all started was just like, he, he and I wrote some songs, Mark Weary, just a really incredible songwriter and lyricist and stuff. Um, and 
And then we recorded them with like, it was a great time. Like Ashley Fuller, people were available like Aaron Fuller, Ashley Fuller and Aaron Fuller, Sean DeGraff. Um, uh, and, um, we're just available so that, you know, willing to do a project for free. I was able to get it, you know, videotaped and stuff by Pete Housley. Um, and then, and then my fascination with the character didn't die there. I wanted to, and I really wanted to figure out some way to bring him to a Vegas stage. Like I would really love to really explore it artistically and, you know, take the concept album further, but also, you know, I live in Las Vegas and, you're trying to do 10 o'clock shows in front of dogs and hookers. So <laughs> you like, uh, again, as a Buddhist, I believe you have to speak to a person's capacity to hear. And like, you have to speak to an audience's capacity to hear. Otherwise, like you can't do, you know, classical Shakespeare at 10 PM for a Las Vegas audience at the Miracle Mile V theater. Right. So how to take the tiger, that character, and what I do and make a show out of it that could be a Vegas that could sit in the firmament of Vegas. Mm -hmm. Um, so as a creature, he's just fat. He's just so American, you know, he's, and I, 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 there, there are parts of him that are monstrous. He has done monstrous things. Um, but a lot of that was, you know, coming from, you know, if I was just, and someone had told Joe, you know, Shreve Vogel, I love you. At some point in his life, when he was a child, we, he might have never been on Netflix. If someone, if he didn't come from, you know, that toxic masculine Oklahoma environment that he came from, um, who knows? And then lost his partner to a, like has suffered so much. That's when he went off the rails is when he lost his partner, the one that he was really in love with. And that's when it became the drugs and the drugs feed into you know your narcissism and your insanity. You can't do meth that long without it really having a substantial effect on your personality mm-hmm. and your ability to function in this world as a, as what we would, you know, a normal healthy human being. So I can't help but have empathy for that person and realize, but also realize he's a monster, but he's uniquely American. You know what I'm saying? And also America loves a second act. Who knows what, you know, it, it would be fantastic if he could use, some of this to help the shit that goes on with animals and, and big cat. I mean, it really is crazy. It was just such a train wreck. I I know my wife and I, we were a little bit late to the party on it and we started watching tiger King and, and we thought, Oh wow, this is, this is weird. Like, how can this be real? And then it just kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier. When the kid killed himself accidentally, that's when it really took a dark turn. Like it was, yeah. oh, ha, 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 funny. And then that happened. You're like, oh, wow. This is like, but then his increasing behavior of like talking about the, like at the funeral, his behavior at the funeral, his behavior. Like it's just, it's shocking what Americans will do in front of a camera. It is shocking what human beings will do. Like we're, you know, we're just cavemen with iPhones is what I think. <laughs> No, I was fascinated by him and I really, and also I just thought it was a venue for me to try to do something. And then Penny Wiggins got involved, uh, um, who's a, you know, Las Vegas legend and stuff. And so we're building it right now. We're in the process of creating this, I don't, magic and mullets is sort of what we're calling it right now. Um, but the idea is that, you know, Joe breaks out of prison and goes rights to Las Vegas because he wants to be a, um, a superstar and he wants to be loved and he wants to capitalize on the fame that everyone else has been capitalizing on. And he uh, does a little show and then Carol breaks in and then there's like a triple quadruple marriage and then the meth lab explodes. I will absolutely buy tickets to that show. 
I hope I think I'm insane. I can't tell you how many times a day I go, Am I crazy? And then I go, No, you're not crazy. This is fine. You're doing okay. And then I'm like, I am crazy. There isn't and then I think I need more crazy. There isn't enough crazy. It's a it's a crazy little experience building this show. But I've been loving it. I'm working with uh, it's zombie cast members and stuff. It's where it's like a side project for us and everyone's just been so generous with their creativity and uh, it's, it's, we've been having a blast. I love it. Is that something you found with Las Vegas in the, and this is something I've noticed in the, in the people that I've talked to is everybody is willing to jump in and, and help each other out. I mean, you mentioned having zombie cast members come in and then all the people that helped you with this initially and, and putting their time in. I mean, it's, it really is amazing how willing everyone is to help each other out. Like compared to, from what I've heard of other cities like LA and New York, where yeah. people are willing to stab each other in the face over parts and roles yeah. and auditions and such. Yeah, it's a tiny little town and you have to get along. And the thing about this town is the way you get work is somebody recommends you or your reputation. And so all you have in this town is your reputation and what people say about you and whether or not they're willing to work for you or recommend you. Like, for girls, it's different, but boys, like, there isn't a lot of work and stuff, but girls, like, but I know it's the same, like, there's so much work for girls, go-go and this and that, they're trying to get shifts covered, so, like, you can't be stabbing girls in the back, because then no one will work with you or recommend you for a job and stuff, like, this town is so small, um, and everyone's a hustler here, everyone is a hustler here, it's just a town of hustlers, so, like, if they're like, if they think that project might, they want to work with you, or they think that might project, or they just want to get out there so that their name is out there, like, you just do it, you know? And so, yeah, everyone's so generous. And so, and especially, um, you know, for like, for Monday's Dark or things like that, you know, of course, like, everyone's going to show up for charity. And like, that's this town, man. Like, of course, what? I only know how to do one thing that I can do in front of people. I can't buy action figures and smoke pot in front of people. So I can just entertain. <laughs> like, if I can use that skill set to help win-win charity or whatever charity, the LGBTQ Center or whatever, like, I'm going to do it. Because, I mean, that's my calling. You know, you have to help in this world. It's unbelievable how people just go to Kenny Davidson's and sing, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, really show up when you need them. It's, yeah, very fortunate. I really love this town. I, I, I really don't have words to express. What a great town Las Vegas has been to me. I know a lot of people maybe it doesn't work for, but these last 19 years have really uh, have been remarkable for me, I must say. Excellent. Enoch, if uh, people want to keep up with what you've got going on, find out where you're going to be performing, learn about your show, get etiquette tips on the correct way to uh, bring a hooker to one of your performances, <laughs> um, how do they go about doing that? I am the Robot Buddha on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook, Enoch K. Scott, Baritones of Love has a Facebook page. The Tiger Thing has a Facebook page. So look that up and like it and look at some of the stuff that's up there. Uh, Tiger Thing is also on the YouTube. There's a Tiger Thing YouTube channel that has the original concept album that we did and uh, some of my stand-up and anything that I I sort of do as uh, the Tiger Thing character I like to try and put up there. And Zombie Burlesque, that is at Planet Hollywood. Planet Hollywood, Miracle Mile Shops. It's at the V Theater. We're six nights a week. We're only dark on Sundays, so Monday through Saturday, 8 p.m. And the Tiger thing will hopefully be opening by spring break, maybe even by Valentine's Day, but hopefully in the next two months. 
uh, whatever this crazy thing I'm creating will be on a stage at uh, 9.30 right after Zombie Burlesque uh, in the same theater, V Theater. So look for that. Awesome. Enoch, thank you so much for jumping on and chatting. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love it running my mouth. So thank you so much for giving me an opportunity. <laughs> Once again, if you want to follow Enoch on Twitter and Instagram, you can find him at The Robot Buddha. And be sure to check out Zombie Burlesque online at zombieburlesque.com for tickets and info. Of course, you can get all these links and more in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. That wraps up another episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas, or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. The Jeff Does Vegas podcast is a Walker New Media production.